The judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court. Unless there is any, any more questions, we have to find an argument in this case. Right? All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States, are admonished to give their attention. Welcome to Divided Argument, an unscheduled, unpredictable Supreme Court podcast. I'm Will Bode. And I'm Dan Epps. Will, I think we should just skip the initial chitter-chatter and just get right to it. We got a voicemail on our voicemail line. You all have to hear it. Let's play that right now. The founding fathers of our state, three separate branches did create, a power balance to instate, from tyranny to insulate. Sometimes a wolf slips past the gate, dressed as a sheep that isn't great. This wolf comes as a wolf. There's just one chief executive. In the White House he does live, and high appointments he may give. Removals his prerogative. This wolf comes as a wolf. The branch led by our head of state has power to investigate and prosecute the crimes we hate. When Congress tries to arrogate that power, it's beyond debate. This wolf comes as a wolf. I fear that the majority fails to protect our liberty. You shouldn't just take it from me. Many scholars will agree, and Congress too will come to see. This wolf comes as a wolf. So, wow. I've got a lot to say about that, but what what are your reactions? I'm sort of the keeper of the, the voicemail box, so I have to you have to rely on me to to give you the stuff. Wow. Thoughts. Uh, that's amazing. Yeah, lots to say about it. So, uh first of all, don't know who it's from. The sender seems to have actually blocked their caller ID, so I have no idea who this is from and what or even what uh area code their phone uh is re- registered to. So, that's a mystery. Clues that is set to a hem. Okay, I don't know if you picked up on that. Uh, well, not, I don't know if you're a big, uh, you know, I'm not a big can him him guy. Can, yeah. But so I, I checked in with friend of the show and your co-author James Y. Stern of William and Mary, and within about 45 seconds after listening to it, he said identified it as a hem from the 19th century, known as Creator of the Stars of Night that I have listened to and I think is correct uh, melody-wise. That hymn, in turn, is apparently based on a 7th century Latin hymn, Conditor Alme Sidera, that is uh, used during uh, Advent. So 
Don't quite know what to make of that. I think it is consistent, though. This is obviously spinning off of the discussion we had over the last couple of episodes about uh, conservatives who uh, at a Scalia event did or did not ritualistically chant uh, along with him as he was reading his dissent in Morrison versus Olson. So now this has been transformed from just kind of a chant at a book signing into into a, a real kind of religious, you know, chant style hymn. So just to make sure I'm following the plot here, yeah. do we think th- this seems like an original creation though? You don't, you don't think there's some secret Scalia chanting club that I've never been invited to that like has been singing this hymn for, for 20 years? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, you know, I have no information on this. I wouldn't have been told about it. Well, I wasn't told about it either. And and the lyrics, some of those are word for word quotes from Morrison versus yeah. Olson, and some are not. Right? Some are just. Yeah, he did not actually write the dissent in, uh, you know, rhyming triplets or whatever those are. But it's not like a found poem where it's like made entirely only of yeah. word for word quotes. That would be cool. But this is okay. this was it's someone cool. someone wrote this someone. I don't think this is written by ChatGPT. I hope not. Someone took the time to uh, write that song, uh, but it captures right. It captures the the moving arguments right of the Morrison dissent. Doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, no. People should play this song to their comlock classes. I might. I just might next year. I don't actually teach Morrison versus Olson anymore, but if I did, why? Because you don't think it's the law anymore? Well, yeah, and I I only spend one day on the the unfair executive problem, and so I you got to make choices and. Because you think it's an easy problem. No, no, the opposite. Uh, I spend more time on the impeachment of Andrew Johnson because I think that's important. Yeah. But this is making me rethink that. <laughs> I mean, you could just teach the song instead of actually having them read the case or anything. No, right, because I have to summarize the case and put it in – yeah, I'm, I'm tempted to just – I used to uh, I used to play Hamilton songs in Kamala, but I stopped doing that once it was clear that was going to be very square rather than very cool. And uh, this is way cooler. Maybe it'll come around the the backside on that again. Okay, so listeners, react to that. Give us your thoughts. Yeah, we will author that. Take credit. Feel free to. Yeah, we are we are suckers for the songs. So this is our second song. I'm hoping this can be a recurring bit on the show. Do, do you think People this song like is them? better than the previous song, or is it unfair to compare them? I like that you. I'm not the. I like yeah. that I'm not the butt of the the butt of this song. I think they're just different. I don't want to criticize either of our song makers because I don't want to discourage people from coming forward. The first song was the one that got the ball rolling and, and really made yeah. this all this whole song thing possible. So it's kind of hard to criticize. Yeah. But that was really good. Yeah. I don't think we're gonna be able to top that. So should we just end the episode there? <laughs> uh tempting. Okay. I guess you're not gonna let me do that. Yeah, so I think this is just gonna be kind of an odds and ends episode. Uh, we don't have like any one big thing to talk about, but we have a bunch of other things that happened Yeah, in the last week or two. Where to start? You know, maybe one to start with, uh, maybe a little, maybe the spiciest thing is Justice Alito's interview with the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. I assume you read this. Uh, I sure did, Dan. Justice Alito, I'd say he was, he was unguarded in this interview. Is uh-huh. that a fair, fair adjective? I'm not sure that's true. I mean, I, I think you think he was guarded. I think this is him guarded. I think. <laughs> well, uh, come on, Dan. <laughs> he was unguarded relative to what how a Supreme Court justice usually deals with an interview. So, lots of uh, stuff that he said that is uh, eyebrow raising. Should we start with the most headline grabbing? Yeah, and I don't even know which one that is. I think you mean the thing about the leaker. Yeah, he says yeah. he knows who the leaker is. 
Yeah. He says, I personally, so he's talking about the investigation. He says, the marshal did a good job of the resources that were available to her uh, and agrees that the evidence was insufficient for a public accusation. I personally have a pretty good idea who is responsible, but that's different from the level of proof that is needed to name somebody. He's also certain with the motive. It was part of an effort to prevent the Dobbs draft from becoming the decision of the court. And that's how it was used for those six weeks by people on the outside as part of the campaign to try to intimidate the court. And he kind of rejects the, the false the, flag theory. Yeah, yeah, the idea that this is a leak by the conservative side. He kind of rejects that as um, yeah. absurd. Yeah. So that was kind of a bold thing to say. Yeah. I'm surprised that he said it. I mean, we. I'm not surprised that there is the, the possibility that there is someone who is like kind of known as the likely leaker. Mm-hmm. That, that doesn't surprise me. Because I, there was sort of a certain flavor of that in the Marshall's report, I thought. Mm-hmm. It sort of talked about how like we just didn't have stuff to meet the the evidentiary standard to feel comfortable. Yeah, they made a lot of the evidentiary standard. And that sort of implied the standard was yeah. doing was doing some work. Yeah. You know, this pushes me toward thinking that the suspect is likely, you know, is more likely to be a clerk. Mm-hmm. If it were a member of the permanent staff, that person, even if they couldn't prove it, you know, beyond a beyond a preponderance, uh, by a preponderance of the evidence, presumably that person would have been fired. Well, maybe right? they have. Maybe they have, but but maybe. I mean, what if there's a member of the permanent staff who is widely suspected to have done a leak, in any case, did some other things they shouldn't have done? Like we learned about, you know, some other kinds of like general security problems at the court from the investigation. So they could be fired for some other reason. Yeah, although maybe... Maybe that person would then go public. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they will. Yeah. Maybe they want a new job. Yeah. So what about the justice theory? Does this, I mean, if you thought it was another justice and you were annoyed with them and wanted to throw shade at them, is this the way you would do it? I don't have that theory. I'm just, yeah, about it. I yeah. don't know. I mean, I think that, I guess I don't, if it were justice, I don't totally know how, you know, and assume that, you know, let's just, uh, some people are saying he's not telling the truth, whatever, but let's just take this uh, for the, the moment. False flag theory yeah. continues. <laughs> it's the false flag, false flag, flag. But I don't know how the Marshall's investigation would have covered anything to point the finger to justice, especially given that they're, they're mm-hmm. that the questioning of the justices, you know, did seem to occur, but it was not very substantial as far as we can tell. Right. Although that could be what is meant by a good job with the resources that were available to her. Yeah. That could be saying, you know. So I think we have a bet riding about whether we're going to find out who the leaker is. Does this make you think it's at all more likely? Or not really? Well, I mean, by preponderance of the evidence. Wait, hold on. Yeah. What was our bet? I don't I don't I don't remember the terms. Uh I'd have to go back and listen. We have I like an ongoing bet, like for all time? I think I had like a deadline of a year or something. It's been a year. It's been it's been you know, a year. I mean, someone bet me last year that it was going to be by the summer, and that yeah. completely did not happen. Yeah, it's bold to say that. I mean, you know, to say that there's this investigative process they weren't able to come up with an answer, but then I'm going to sort of go around saying I know who did it. I'm not sure that's prudent or wise. Okay, and it serves only to gin up speculation. I don't know if it's like is that helpful to the public to be told that that Justice Alito thinks he knows who did it. Does that like help the court's image? Is that like why is that good for that to be disclosed? All right, I guess that's always my job to do this. I think yes. the case <laughs> it is. That's what Leonard Leo pays you to do to be on the show, right? Do you know I've never met Leonard Leo? <laughs> you just you I just you've just even... seen his silhouette, like you know, in the <laughs> smoke-filled room, I, barking orders. 
don't think he even knows who I am. I mean, he knows who you are. I very much doubt that. You don't believe. You don't believe he doesn't know who you are. You I really that. don't believe he knows who I am. I don't believe that you believe that. And if you do be, believe that, that's ridiculous. I would be profoundly shocked if you do. Whatever. You know, there's one image of the court is sort of it's like hapless and incompetent, and like there was this leak, and they're so vulnerable. I think we maybe even have an episode calling them a soft target. Yeah. And if the actual truth is, you know, actually it's pretty clear who did it, but not clear enough to justify the kind of tarring and feathering that would occur if that person would be publicly named as the court is erring on the side of caution, especially if they've fired the person or whatever, uh, and are kind of handling it internally. Maybe that makes them look a little bit more, you know, competent, responsible. Maybe just as Lewis just saying that to make the court yeah. look good. It just, just seems like it does not make the court seem more competent to have, you know, individual members of the court kind of like providing leaking crumbs about uh, dropping crumbs about, you know, the details of the investigation. It seems like that should sort of come from once there is an official investigation in place, like that should be yeah, the court and the investigation should be the one, you know, providing well, information. Sure. I mean, and there's a, should Justice Alito be giving a, a interview to the Wall Street Journal? I'm not sure. This is a kind of a, a, an opinion dynamic, I feel like though too, where like the court will write an opinion and there'll be a bunch of points the court doesn't make or responses to the sent the court doesn't make. And then Alito will write a concurring opinion saying, you know, and another thing, and another thing, and another thing. So maybe this is sort of Alito's concurring opinion to the Marshall's report. Well, he should have done that in a more, I, I don't think that doing that, I mean, you're not supposed to do the concurring opinion by talking to a reporter. But I bet, I bet he, they wouldn't have let him publish a concurring opinion if he'd wanted to at the time. I mean, if he had said, I want you to put this on the website, I don't know if they would have stopped him. I don't know. Really? I guess they let Breyer publish a dissent from the closing of the door, yeah, so yeah. It's, kind of, it's kind of over. All right, fair enough. Gosh, there was some other uh, interesting stuff in here. So he talks about, you know, kind of the protests against the justices in connection with Dobbs. You know, he says he's you know driven around uh, in what is basically a tank now, has kind of round the clock mm-hmm. uh, security, and you know, more generally, it seems to, and this is something that. You know, he sort of gestured at in, in other comments, which he's he's sort of saying like, oh gosh, like people are criticizing the court uh, in a way that's really unfair and a really that's really unprecedented, and mm-hmm. that we're being attacked. This part I have a lot of objections to, in the sense that first, to the extent that he's trying to paint this as kind of historically exceptional, I think that's probably wrong. I think the court has been, you know. He says new during my lifetime. Do you think it's n- not new during his lifetime? I think it's probably not new during his lifetime. He was born in 1950. Okay. I recall there being some some interesting cases that were decided in the kind of 1950 onward, mid-60s period. Yeah. Although am, I I wrong, am I wrong about that? Well, I think you're right. There were some cases then. I think what he's saying, I think he's probably thinking of that. I think what he's saying is, so he says, the idea has always been that judges are not supposed to respond to criticisms, but if the courts are being unfairly attacked, the organized bar will come to their defense. But now, if anything, they've participated to some degree in these attacks. And so, you know, there were signs. There was like an impeach or a Warren thing. That's not what he's saying, though. He's saying this type of concerted attack on individual justices is new during my lifetime. This and then he has this other thought about how, you know, it's too bad that the bar isn't defending us. I, it's in one paragraph. I mean, I don't, you know. Mm. With, with, the, with some ellipses in between. But I think what makes this new, and maybe this is not what he meant, maybe I'm being too kind to him, is that the idea is like during the Brown era, of course people attacked the court, but the justice didn't have to, like Earl Warren didn't have to go around kind of like 
responding to the attacks because there was a sense that like the well, institutional neither, bar would do so. Neither does Alito. Well, like, he doesn't have to. to do this. He didn't have to go talk to the Wall Street Journal. Right. But I think he's saying there was a sort of that, that norm was part of a was part of an institutional context. The court doesn't respond to attacks if the organized bar will have their back. If the organized bar doesn't have their back, that's fine. But then Justice Alito gets to defend himself. It's sort of like you can't both take away the kind of institutional protection and then get mad when people engage in self-help. I think I'm not sort of getting mad that someone engages in self-help. I'm getting, I just think it's, you know, bridle at the notion that it just it conveys a certain sense of like entitlement, like, gosh, who are people to be criticizing us for what we're doing? You know, we're just doing, we're just, we're the Supreme Court. And I think that, look, they they do things that like profoundly affects people's lives in ways that are deeply shaped by top politics and in court, you exercise a huge amount of power. You're going to get criticized. Like, stop think, whining about it. I think you're overreading. Uh, so, I don't think I think Justice Alito's critique is narrow in two ways. I think he's mad about being unfairly criticized. He thinks the criticisms are wrong. And I think I mean Justice Alito's always had this concern with kind of expecting one side to tie their hands behind their back while the other side is not bound by norms. So, I mean, that's sort of his like that's his whole shtick, right? Is he'll say, "Oh, you want me to engage in judicial restraint while the other side is not engaging in judicial restraint? Well, why would I do that?" You want me to protect like the free speech of uh, you know animal crush videos while you're not willing to protect the free speech of Hillary Clinton haters. And I mean, he made an explicit claim there too. He said yeah. like, look, it used to be the norm was we protect a bunch of free speech, but the left abandoned that. So I'm abandoning it too. So this is just exactly the same shtick. It's saying the norm is that justices are not supposed to talk to the wall street journal. That norm was contingent on the organized bar being responsible. If you guys are not going to be responsible, I'm not either. And I don't think he's mad. I think he's probably excited. I don't know if he's excited. I do not think this, these entire remarks are about whether it's appropriate for him to talk to the Wall Street Journal. I think they're about the actual criticism that he thinks is unfair, right? And he's mad that people are saying stuff that, about the court being illegitimate. And he's like, well, you know, that's, that's your problem because you're the one saying it and that's making it true. And then my response right. is, okay, but like, what if the court is actually illegitimate, doing really bad things? All sorts of reasons to object to how they're exercising power. Like, what does he want? I think what he wants is just to be able to exercise raw power and then have no one criticize him for doing so. Which I is, I just true. don't think the way it, way it, way it works. Maybe I'm reading myself into this. I think he thinks that having disagreements on the merits are totally fair, but there's this tendency, and I do think it's a little new, at least in my lifetime, to like level up your merits critiques to also be like a meta critique it's like the court is not just wrong and dobbs it's illegitimate it's not just wrong it's illegitimate and i think he thinks that inference is unjustified and we should just argue about who's right and wrong about dobbs and but they could also be people could be right that it's illegitimate they could be i mean i don't i don't read him to ever say in here that if the court is illegitimate you shouldn't say so well he, he sort of says it's bad to undermine confidence in the government he just says it undermines confidence in the government you know, when Which you say that when you you could you, when you say that the branches are illegitimate, any of the three branches of government, you're really striking at something that's essential to self-government. So right. I think he uh, thinks that that's bad inherently. To, to, I think he thinks that's strong medicine. I I don't think there's nothing in there that denies that if the branches are in fact illegitimate, that it's worth the strong medicine. Of there's know. nothing there that endorses that either. So I mean, you're you're well again, you, you you're might welcome think that, to read in all the reasonable caveats and stuff to what he's saying if you want. That's fine. Well, from his point of view, it's a weird hypo. It's like if somebody, you know, 
somebody threatens to kill the president. You could say, like, in general, it's bad if I kill the president. And then you're like, well, what if the president is an evil axe murderer? I'd be like, well, yeah, that would be different. But I can just talk about how it's bad to threaten to kill the president without indulging the evil axe murderer hypo. I guess, but I mean, I think that when you're responding to your critics, you need to actually like explain why they're wrong. And the thing that he seems to be saying is this criticism is unfair and it's wrong of them to call us illegitimate. But I think he's already defended himself on the merits. So I think he's explained why he thinks the critics are wrong and like all the opinions, right? And he defends Justice Kavanaugh. He says, after Justice Kavanaugh was accused of being a rapist during his Senate confirmation hearings, he made an, an impassioned speech made an impassioned scene, and he was criticized because it was supposedly not judicious, not the proper behavior for a judge to speak in those terms. I don't know. If somebody calls you a rapist, which is interesting, I think that's, is that the first time we've seen somebody on the court like explicitly talk about that? Talk about Justice uh, Kavanaugh's demeanor at that hearing, which I found, I certainly found disturbing. I don't remember seeing anything like that. I'll, yeah. I'll... And he does, by contrast, when asked about the ethics accusations against Justice Thomas, he says, quote, I'll stay away from that. Yeah, that was interesting that he yeah. he comes to Kavanaugh's defense, but not Thomas's. So, yeah. What do you make of that? I guess the statute of limitations is run or something. <laughs> well, um, why not say that, right? Like, why not? Well, they do say he, he does address a less recent drama. So maybe that's what he was saying. So, you know, that's like old news. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think justices should talk about the confirmation process, I guess. But again, I, I don't necessarily subscribe to the Alito theory of like tit for tat, norm violation. He also, I mean, that, that also seems to be not just a, a, a rule about norm violation, but like a principle of legal interpretation, right? Like it seems like he, he uses those as arguments on the merits for why a particular argument is right. Because like, oh, well, like you on the other side didn't do this other thing. Therefore, we, we win. I think it's still norms because, of course, legal doctrines are part shaped by norms. So I think he use it's like in Gundy, he'll say, you know, the law requires X. Now you want me to do something unusual, you know, to indulge or not indulge stare decisis. That's like more of a norm. Uh, well, that depends on whether you're willing to indulge or not indulge stare decisis. You want to make an originalist argument in this case and have me take it seriously. Well, it depends on whether you are willing to make originalist arguments. Yeah, but it, I guess that shouldn't be right. Like, it, if the argument should actually just be evaluated on its own terms, right? Well, I think it depends on. A, this is like actually a more profound question of legal theory. It depends on where you think these doctrines come from. So, if you think that like the Constitution is the law, but then there are some norms like stare decisis and deferring to your colleagues and trying to find common ground, that in some cases as a judge cause you to sort of put aside like the the first best law, then it's not crazy to say. Yeah, but know. I mean, engaging with the originalist argument. Shouldn't that either be, you know, to Alito, that's either a right argument or a wrong argument? Uh, How can it I depend guess. on whether, you know, what positions the people advancing the argument have offered in the past? I mean, I'm already, I don't think Justice Alito is right in Janus to, to refuse to indulge the originalist argument that Eugene Volokh and I made in Mika's brief. But we do have, we have principles like estoppel, where we say, you know, you made this argument, you made the opposite argument in the past. Why are like mm -hmm. other justices on the court stopped? Like that, oh, in, that doesn't make any sense. Sorry, in Janus, it's the parties. So Janus, yeah. he, He's saying, like, you, the union, made an anti-originalist argument in, in an amicus brief 17 years ago, and therefore you aren't allowed to make originalist arguments now. Yeah, that's, again, I don't, that's preposterous, I, right? That is not my preferred form of estoppel, but I'm just saying. I mean, and that's like preposterous that a party is bound for all time by the like, you know, interpretive theories that advances in briefs in different cases. I mean, I agree, but I feel like I just read articles saying like, well, the originalists may have an originalist argument in this case, but they're not making it in good faith because they didn't make an originalist argument in this other case, and therefore 
And sometimes the argument goes, therefore, criticism sometimes making from the outside to say, look, they're not advancing these things in good faith. Fair enough. And he could say to the, you know, the people you're not advancing this argument in good faith, that doesn't relieve you of the obligation to evaluate the argument on its own merits, right? I think sometimes people make that argument as if, as if it should be a response in the merits of the individual case. Now, if we both agree that it shouldn't be, I think we can say, you know, you shouldn't be able to criticize Dobbs on the bad faith grounds. It might be that Dobbs is like correct and in bad faith, but it being in bad faith doesn't is irrelevant yeah. to correctness. That'd be fine. Okay. Is there anything else we want to pull out of here? I mean, there's no, those are the highlights. Oh, he also he sort of talked about a sort of a pending matter. He talked about a shadow docket stuff. I'm surprised you didn't want to uh, talk about that. And he says, you know, all these applications are a nuisance. They are very disruptive. But what are we supposed to do? They brought uh, they are brought to us. The last administration brought a lot to us because a lot of its programs were enjoined. This administration is doing the same thing right now. The Solicitor General has said she's likely to file an application here to stay the Fifth Circuit's order in the case involving the Mifepristone, however you pronounce that word. And then the, the journal helpfully notes, it's Mifepristone, an abortion drug that the lower court had said violated the FDA, uh, had said the FDA erred in approving. So, and then he's like sort of talking about his, like how he's going to deal with it. He's like, oh, I've got sitting next week and we have arguments, I have to prepare. But when this thing comes in, I'm going to have to put all that aside and deal with it. Uh, I thought it was a little weird to be kind of like talking anticipatorily about like a shadow docket filing that's about to be brought to the court. That that seems a little, that seems a little dicey. I think that's quite improper. Okay. All right. All right. Forging, forging some consensus. Yeah. Okay. So Alito interview improper. Uh, Next topic. Oh, I'm just going to sneak this in. This would be a great time for you to go give us uh, a rating and a review on the Apple uh, podcast app or wherever you get your podcasts. We still are you know, trying to expand the uh, listenership of the show, and we've got a good number of positive reviews on there, but could use some more. I note that for a very long time, we were uh, cruising at a 4.9 out of 5 average. Uh, somehow, we've been brigaded by haters, and we're now down to a 4.8. So uh, if you could help us tick that back up, I think we'd all appreciate it. Okay, sorry. Just, just wanted to get that in before. We always do that at the end, and by which point people have kind of stopped listening. So I thought we should get that in now while we're still talking about kind of exciting stuff. Here's another big one that the bigness of which I think is going to take you know weeks or months to kind of unfold, which is that Justice Stevens, you know, from beyond the grave, has released a huge chunk of his papers. Yeah. Earlier this week, not all of them. He uh, released his papers going through. I think is it the, is it 2004 2005 I think 2005, it's like yeah. right up to when the chief and Alito joined yeah. it seems like why is that the date do we know uh it's a little unclear I mean cuz justice Thomas I mean includes a bunch of I mean all the other justices who were on the court during that time period have left the court but for justice Thomas yeah so he doesn't seem to care about that yeah I mean maybe justice Thomas doesn't care I don't know yeah but- but this was; these were the terms that he said. The rest of them become available uh, in seven years, in 2030. You know, there's a ton of big stuff in here. Bush v. Gore is in here. Yeah. Uh, Casey is in here. So we're getting a lot of, and it's not just when these papers come out, it's not just like the justice's own internal documents. It's correspondence that was sent right. between different chambers. Although I think, so Casey was already in the Blackman papers, because Blackman was still in the court for Casey. Yes, that's true. But I think that sometimes there are memos that are not circulated to everybody. Yeah, no, and some justices keep more stuff than others, although Blackman kept a lot. I just think I think the big fines are going to be everything in the post-Blackman 
Yes, pre- that's that's fair. But in, in so the New York Times, Adam Letak, friend of the show, has an article on this where he went and found some stuff, mm-hmm. and he found a 1992 memo from Justice Kennedy about Casey that was mm-hmm. sent to Justices Souter and then CC'd to uh, Justices O'Connor and Stevens. And so presumably that wouldn't have been in the Blackman papers uh, if it was only sent to those recipients. Mm-hmm. Um, and this memo uh, contained Justice Kennedy's late night musings about the case, sort of trying to think about how to respond to the Chief Justice, uh, the Chief Justice Rehnquist's uh, dissent, sort mm-hmm. of accusing the court of letting public opinion shape its work. Why do you think that doesn't go to Blackman, actually? I don't know. I haven't se- I haven't seen a copy of it. So that's four of the justices. Yeah, of the five justices in the majority. Yeah, I have no idea. I mean, maybe it does, and it just wasn't stated in the article. But it no, well, maybe it says it was addressed to Justice Souter and copied to Justices O'Connor and Stevens. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, who knows? I, I don't know what the relationship was between Justice Kennedy and Justice Blackman. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I genuinely don't know. I never you know, spoke to him about it. So uh, maybe they were close. Maybe they weren't. Maybe there was something weird going in the case. I don't know. These records, unfortunately, are not digitized at the moment. So yeah. we're kind of just relying on people like Adam to go down there and pull some out and to quote them and to tell us about them. So hopefully, eventually, they will get scanned. There's a lot of records. I mean, he was on the court just for 30 years, just in this like this chunk of documents, right? This is like 1975 to 2005. Yeah. I also like, uh, Liptak also reports, and I think I saw this elsewhere, some of the things from Bush versus Gore, including a complaint from uh, Justice Scalia about the tone of the dissents. Yeah. That was really Noting striking. that he was, quote, the last person to complain. The dissents should not be thorough and hard-hitting. Um, but then he complains anyway. Yeah. I found that in life, generally, the the kind of bullies are often the people with the, the thinnest skins. Uh, the people who criticize others the harshly are most likely to kind of respond the least well to criticism. So that was kind of interesting. Has a certain amount of kind of like the... Alito, like, why are you criticizing me? Grievance feeling to it too. It does. Although I will say this, the substantive point Scalia makes there is also the same as the Alito point, which is the dissents are lamenting the, you know, cost, the institutional cost this will impose in the court while contributing to it, which I think is totally legit. You're allowed to both decide that on the merits, you've got to do what you've got to do and then be upset about the situation. But, yeah. But I mean, if you think that like, if you think that the court is like demeaning the institution by doing something that's a travesty, like is the principle that you're, you're you know, just for the good of everybody, you're supposed to just pretend that's not true. No, I, right. I, I think in both cases, the right lesson, even if it's not what's clear that it would say is just focus on the object level question. Like don't, don't pack the courts because they're illegitimate pack the courts because you know, they're striking down gun laws that they shouldn't strike down or whatever. Yeah. Cause the legitimacy is a byproduct of the, discourse the real question is the substance but but it could be i mean there could be substantive arguments for why they're illegitimate there could be what if if the president had like assassinated five justices and put his like stooges on the court i think you should say it's illegitimate and like not just be like oh their their opinions aren't like well blue booked or whatever i mean there's a lot of that hypo like like how are these people being confirmed (laughs) and and how are they ruling yeah i just Uh, no i I didn't don't i don't have time to, to to you know Make the recess appointments. <laughs> sure, but or or he has you know, you know, guns in the upper chamber of the Senate or something. I mean, you know, uh, yeah. Anyway, yeah. This is one of those times I wish I, uh, you know, I wish I was a stereotypical law professor who just had like a free summer to go to D.C. and uh, just start like digging through the papers and see what I could find. Someday, yeah. When my kids it's are grown you- and my 
papers are all written. Once you have accomplished what you intend to accomplish with originalism, you've, once you've persuaded everybody, then it'll be time for you to, you know, James Madison, different pastures. So James Madison kept these like private notes of the constitutional convention that we now mm-hmm. rely on to know what happened in the constitutional convention. Mm-hmm. And he, for a long time was not like for decades, he didn't publish them. And he has this kind of cute uh, letter where he says he's going to wait to publish them until all of the kind of constitutional ambiguities have been, have been resolved, which he anticipates will be in his lifetime. <laughs> so so the same thing. Like We'll see. Okay. More interesting stuff and in, all in the vein of, you know, a lot of stuff related to like what justices are doing in public, what, what we're allowed to know about them, public scrutiny. So next one, uh, Chief Justice Roberts uh, sent a letter to Senator Durbin, who's the current chair of the Judiciary Committee, declining uh, an invitation uh, to testify. Mm-hmm. We talked about this invitation in the last episode, right? Or did we already talk about We, we didn't talk we about the response. The invitation was out. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he writes, you know, a fairly – Fairly curt uh, one-page uh, response where he basically just says, testimony before the Senate Judiciary Committee by the Chief Justice of the United States is exceedingly rare, as one might expect in light of separation of powers concerns and the importance of preserving judicial independence. And he goes and he finds this has only happened two times, uh, once in 1921 and once in 1935, just involving routine matters of judicial administration. Chief Justice Rehnquist appeared before a couple of House committees on mundane yeah. topics. Notice that to um, get the this to have it happen twice, he has to. It has to be testimony by the Chief Justice, not an Associate Justice, because yeah. like Breyer and Scalia testified, you know, ten years ago. Yeah. On matters other than appropriations or nominations, yeah, that's also happened, and before a Senate committee, because actually there are several before a House committee. So it's it's a that's some good lawyering right there. Yeah, and so basically, I'm too important to do this. You know, this is not this is not for me. Well, and, and you missed at the second half, the last part of the paragraph, which has raised my brows, is he then analogizes himself to the president. Yeah, congressional testimony from the head of the executive branch is likewise infrequent, according to the United States website. No president has ever testified for the Senate Judiciary Committee, and only three presidents, 1862, 1919, and 1974, have testified before any congressional committee. So I take it the implication is, you know, the Chief Justice is kind of like the president. He's the the president of the judicial branch, I guess. Yeah, although Article 2 vests the executive power in the president. Article yes. 3 vests the judicial power not in the chief justice, but in the Supreme Court and in the lower courts if they're established. So, so maybe a little different. Yeah. Someone told me the other day that, you know, so he, you know, pointedly in the chief justices of recent history have always been very, you know, proud of that title, chief justice of the United States. Mm-hmm. Someone told me that that was actually not what they were called uh, until the 20th century. That that's not like because because that phrase is not in the Constitution. That there was some point at which uh, they were called just called Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, and then at some point there was some statutory change making the person the Chief Justice of the United States. I think I read that as well. I yeah. thought it was the late 19th century that it okay, changed. Maybe, but but either way. Um, but the Constitution does refer to the Chief Justice, right? Yes, but it doesn't say the Chief Justice of the United States. Uh, it says the Chief Justice of what? It, it just says the Chief Justice. It just says, when the President of the United States is tried, the Chief Justice shall preside. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I kind of like the shortness. I kind of like that the official title is just yeah. the Chief Justice. And it Chief also says, when the President of the United States is tried, the Chief Justice. Not the Chief right. Justice of the United States. So by... By implication, maybe he's not the Chief Justice of the United States. Uh, maybe. 
maybe, or maybe they just thought the alternate states would be, you know, redundant. I mean, this is also like the point that the Constitution doesn't refer to the judges of the Supreme Court as justices, other yeah. than that phrase, right? Yeah. The Appointments Clause talks about the judges of the Supreme Court. And the judges, both of the Supreme and Inferior Courts. Yeah, it's, it's in Article 2 and Article 1. So he's not going to do it. I'm not, I guess not terribly surprising. No. I could see it going the other way. I mean, this is, I mean, obviously this is, um, this has not been a great few weeks for the court. I mean, you can, you know, agree or disagree about the extent to which some of the criticism of the justices is fair, or unfair, or, you know, or, I mean, in terms of how this is playing, it, it hasn't, I think it hasn't been a great stretch for the court. And you could imagine Chief Justice Roberts wanted to have some, do something to kind of like, cool things down on the other hand it's really i mean it would not be it would be a kind of a no-win proposition for him right yeah it's going to well, be a political spectacle yeah and and showing up on their terms yeah to mostly get yelled at seems tough and you know we know from some leaks i guess we've talked about previously that the justices themselves have some kind of internal division about these things which might make it especially tough to go to go as sort of the agent of the court and and i mean you go and and try to manage all that but yeah that's why i do think he, he did something here that i actually think is uh quite nice right which is he also attached a five-page document that i think is new it must be pretty new because it's signed by katanji yeah. jackson i mean we've seen some stuff like this in earlier decades where there have been like statements put out about like how the justices are going to handle certain kinds of like conflicts for recusal purposes but i don't think we've seen this full yeah. document uh it's called a statement of a statement on ethics, principles, and practices. It's got an appendix, so you're you're kind of giving them a little bit too much credit by saying five pages. So the actual substantive content uh, is about three pages. But, but the appendix is still written by the court, right? It contains their yeah. own statements about what. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. I mean, it it describes the various rules and so forth that apply to the justices and and govern lower court judges and so forth. But yeah, it is it is signed by. Uh, at least it has the names of every current justice on the court beneath the main text of the document, uh-huh. uh, including uh, Justice Jackson. And it says um, that all, all the current members of the court subscribe to these principles. That's what the chief says in his letter. Yeah. In terms of those principles, they mostly don't seem super, super confining. Like, what, what did you get out of here that isn't already kind of covered by the law? So there's stuff about more concrete stuff about how much money they're allowed to get for teaching stuff like that. But I thought that was that was not like a thing that they're just doing on their own. Right. Well, I take it the part of the controversy is like there are a bunch of statutes out there that govern judges. And there's some question about which of these statutes the court thinks applies to it. Right. If you wanted to ha- regulate, for instance, that's what the appendix is about. It's to show the justices comply with the Ethics and Government Act. No, they comply with the substance of the, of the regulations under the Ethics and Government Act. Maybe not the whole thing. They comply with the substance of the federal gift statute. They comply with the Foreign Gifts Act. They, you know, so I take it that's part of what you get out of this. It's just like, how do we stand in relationship to the various um, legal provisions? Yeah, they don't. They don't view themselves as bound by the Code of Conduct for Judges, but they take guidance from it, etc. Is there a document associated with this? It's this 1991 resolution of the court to follow the substance of the Judicial Conference regulations. I think we've seen that before. Yeah, I think we've seen that, but I don't have it have it at hand. Yeah. I mean, I will say this is sort of if you were setting out to like create a bunch of regulations for the court, like this might be what you would want them to do. I mean, this might be what the regulations would look like. Maybe you want them to be a little stricter, I'm not sure. But 
I mean, it clearly doesn't assuage the criticisms, right? Doesn't really talk about, you know, some of the things that have come up more recently. Right. It may help focus the conversation on, you know, is the problem that we need additional principles? Is the problem that the justices are not being true to these principles? Is the problem that we just need, you know, a more trustworthy arbiter? Like, we don't know if the justices are being true to the principles or not because we don't trust the justices to apply the principles to themselves. And it could be any of those. It could be all of those. It could be some combination. But I do think getting in one place kind of the principles that the court currently purports to apply is actually a just a usefully grounding exercise yeah. in, uh, in answering that question if you're uh, one of these people who thinks the court needs more ethics reform. Yeah. Which I don't. Okay. Related, picking up the threads, there have been a couple pieces recently about the relationship between you know, individual law schools to the justices. And particularly, uh, New York Times has a piece about uh, George Mason. They got a bunch of, you know, George Mason is a public law school. So the Times was able to get a bunch of uh, documents through uh, whatever the state uh, version of FOIA is that, you know, is about the kind of people there are kind of stra- strategizing about how to, you know, get the conservative justices there. You know, it's uh, George Mason is now Scalia Law School. Antonin Scalia Law School. And so they're trying to build a brand as the place where conservative justices uh, hang out. Uh, And then an ABC piece about Notre Dame, which has sort of taken a somewhat similar strategy to try to, you know, get the conservative justices to hang out and and build relationships. Is it the monkey's paw when you make a wish and your wish is granted, but in like a sort of dark way that's the opposite of what you had in mind i think so yeah so i think in the last episode i think i said that you know we ought to focus more on law schools we're worried about these gifts and relationships to the justices and that's where the you know we're allowed to begin and you you thought you were aiming at like you know liberal harvard law professors trying to influence you know justice kennedy i mean let's just note right so one former supreme court justice is currently a I think tenured like academic law professor at a law school, not on the basis of his body of academic work. That's Harvard and Justice Breyer. I don't know but if he law- actually someone told someone told me he's actually technically not a tenured position, but he is I see. great. But I mean, I'm, I'm uncertain about that. Maybe he's just a professor of practice or something. Yeah. Regardless, he's on the payroll. A former dean of that law school is another Supreme Court justice. That law school or that university has a major case before the court from which nobody other than Justice Jackson is recused, despite their many relationships to the institution. I'm fine with all that, but I didn't see that mentioned in these stories. Yeah. So you think that they're unfairly picking on these conservative law schools for trying to have, you know, follow a strategy that basically, you know, the mainstream law schools have done all along. I'm willing to give the New York Times more credit. I'm willing to think maybe they're picking on George Mason because it's subject to FOIA. And maybe if they've been able to FOIA NYU and learn about like Justice Sotomayor gallivanting around Scotland, they would have run a story about that too. But I do think there's a profoundly misleading narrative created by these stories. I I mean, because I think like every law school that thinks it has a chance of getting Supreme Court justices to come does some of the strategizing. So I don't think Justice Kavanaugh gets invited to Harvard and Yale right now. I don't think, I think right now he does not. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't I mean, think it's the case that every law school that chance to get a Supreme Court justice does this. No, I'm just saying in um, every law school that has a chance to get a Supreme Court justice who would bestow honor on the institution. I'm just saying that like schools like this, cause it's prestigious and cause it looks good to donors yeah. and students and stuff like that. And it makes sense that, you know, we're seeing this, just as we're seeing this division of the 
legal community into these totally two separate ideological spheres that's also happening at law schools where these are a couple successful conservative law schools. Well, they're going to bring the conservative justices into their orbit. I mean, so I think I think the Mason story notes that like they've also had Kagan and Sotomayor there, and Kagan has said nice things about Mason, and of course they're in the D.C. area. And I think if you look at the Sen Shilton Bonica like uh, survey of the politicization of law schools, I think Mason and Notre Dame are both split between conservatives and liberals at most, and maybe even student split. student wise, in faculty. I think faculty. I'm, yeah. yeah. But I mean, they're clearly the strategy the school is taking is embracing conservatism, right? The strategy they're taking is not engaging in, I mean, they're named the school, the school of law. They're taking the strategy of, of actually having viewpoint diversity. And it seems a little weird in a world where like the Harvard and Yales of the world, you know, decide to allow the students to blackball Supreme Court justices on ideological grounds then complain that the Supreme Court justices went to the schools that would have them. Yeah. It just seems like the, I find the hot spots sort of breathtaking. Yeah, I guess here, I mean, I, you last time you were sort of saying, oh, well, like, you know, we, we can't disentangle Supreme Court justices accepting, you know, hundreds of thousand dollars of, of free gifts from private citizens from, you know, being invited to go speak at universities. And I said, well, I think I can disentangle that a little bit. But I do think that this exactly figuring out why this is so bad, it's not totally clear to me. I wasn't, I'm not totally persuaded. Um, and there's some stuff in there that it seemed a little bit yeah. kind of neither here. Yeah, these also collapse different things. So like one thing is sometimes the law schools effectively pay the justices a lot of money, more yeah. money, more effective money than they're allowed to by, you know, letting them teach in a palazzo in Italy or whatever. And I think lots of law schools do that, but that's like one thing. Sometimes the justices are like, you know, it's not that. Like it sounds like Justice Thomas goes to, you know, the Arlington campus of George Mason to teach a class a bunch of times. So he's like, I mean, He's putting in some hours and not getting a trip to Italy out of it. Yeah, but there is something else there about relationship building, and sometimes I don't. Yeah, sometimes it's more like about pre-existing relationships. Like, I mean, Justice Barrett was a longtime faculty member at Notre Dame yeah. and presumably has a lot of friends there. So you know that seems like a different thing. We could disentangle those in some way or another. But yeah, and this is just some weird stuff in here. Like it. It lingers on the fact that uh, Jamil Jaffer, who uh, teaches at Mason and is the founder of its National Security Institute, had like helped the Gorsuch family by going to like look at houses with the realtor. Yeah, but like he's, he's a former, I, I, yeah, he's a former yeah. clerk. I mean, this isn't like that's like something you would do. Like if your old boss, like you know, if Justice Kennedy was moving to St. Louis, I assume you would. Yeah, I would. <laughs> Help him out. There have been, you know, things where he calls up and says, "Can you help me with this thing?" And that, of course, I'd help him with anything. I mean, changed my life. So, like, I, I I don't know why. Like, what was supposed to be troubling about that? Yeah, like this is a person with whom he's a pre-existing relationship who's doing like a favor for their family, right? Like, why is that bad? Yeah. So I hate to get all Justice Alito here, but doesn't it seem like there's a kind of narrative about? like the conservatives on the court and some kind of corruption and influence and everybody is trying to be part of the narrative. Yeah. And I mean, I don't care about this, but I gather justice Jackson's husband, like makes consulting income, consulting on legal, like medical malpractice cases. And there were some issues where they should disclose that appropriately. And then she go back and correct it. You know, I gather justice Sotomayor goes on some of these trips as well, but it seems to me like there's a narrative and now everybody's trying to be part of it. And I don't like that. Am I wrong not to like it? Am I wrong this is happening? I think that these articles in particular are ones that are being trying to be slot into this narrative in a way that is 
I think is unfair yeah, in the okay. sense that there's not, I don't think you can fairly paint a picture okay. that this is somehow asymmetrical. You know, justices across the divide, ideological divide are getting all sorts of goodies from various law schools and taking advantage of these trips and so forth. Yeah. And, and normally I would like to, you know, learn things to build my narrative out of the facts. So I'd love for there to be, I don't know, more we could learn about how this all works across the board, but this, this makes me worry about our institutions. Which ones? The press. Not the podcasts. The podcasts are good. This podcast is good. You make you the worry other. about it because you think they're being selective. Yeah. Selective in a way that's misleading, right? I mean, I don't think I don't think major news organizations ever lie. I don't think they ever report things like facts that they know to be false. Like Fox News election stuff. Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> major news organizations not named Fox News. Okay. I don't think the left-wing major news organizations ever lie. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, I mean, I think that... But I do think they deceive. Yeah, I mean, by omission, you know, I think it is... By omission uh, and excessive focus. Yeah, yeah, and I think this is a place where that's reasonable. Like, I mean, I think that one thing people are kind of like bothered by this is this idea that this school is like being built as this conservative institution and like they're explicitly trying to like tie up their rise with like tying themselves to the conservative justices. You know, I don't always, you know, buy your kind of like, well, what about this arguments? But in this one, I do think, I do think it is kind of hard to draw a line between why this is wrong and why all the stuff that other law schools do uh, is not great. So I, at one point earlier uh, in my career, will not give much in the way of identifying details, but I did go to an event at a, you know, elite law school where a Supreme Court justice attended and there were, you know, left-leaning professors involved who heaped unctuous praise in a way that seemed not directly to influence, but, you know, the kind of, the, the kind of display, the kind of like greenhouse effect that the conservatives are always worried about. Yeah. And that's just a phenomenon that, that happens when these, you know, institutions are trying to bring justices in. They're, they're, trying, they're getting a lot out of it. They're getting their professors a chance to try to influence them. They're getting the prestige. They're impressing their students. They're impressing uh, their donors. Um, they're maybe helping getting the justice to hire more clerks in that school, all sorts of things like that. Yeah. I mean, I do think there's an interesting question a law school faces, I mean, about, about the strategy that we think George Mason's pursuing. Like, if you think, wow, the courts are becoming more conservative and most law schools are unwilling to lean into that yep. and are unwilling to do the things you'd want to do to position your students to get clerkships with that administration or to do the kind of law that's you know now going to work in the courts and you know we have a market opportunity we know you know the oakland days yeah the Moneyball era we have an opportunity to lean into that it's an interesting question whether that's legitimate or whether you should say no no as an institution we we, we don't engage in strategy we just call balls and strikes or, or not i think that's an interesting question i mean i think that every institution engages in some strategy right like, right, but should your strategy be driven by the law? Like, should you say, we're a law school, so we're going to hire more people who do X, where we're sort of dubious of X because, like, the courts now do X? Like, should you hire more originalists when the courts become originalists and hire more critical race theorists when the courts turn to critical you race theorists? hire, you know, more antitrust scholars when, like, antitrust enforcement becomes more rigorous or something like that, or... More law and economics scholars yeah. once the law and economics becomes an important yeah. ingredient in antitrust litigation. Yeah, I mean, it seems like it's... It's hard to say it's, like, in principle insidious for a law school to make its kind of resource allocation decisions based on, you know, what's actually happening in the real world and, yeah. like, how it might be beneficial to people being trained and how to influence, you know, legal decision makers. 
Yeah. Then I think if, you know, if a top six law school decided they wanted to, you know, eat George Mason or Notre Dame's lunch by just hiring all the best faculty at George Mason and Notre Dame combined, you know, tripling their salaries or whatever, maybe they should. Yeah. I mean, in Virginia, like kind of a generation ago, it was sort of had seen us having more conservatives and being a little bit more conservative friendly mm-hmm. uh, than other law schools. But my sense is that they've kind of, they mm-hmm. kind of stopped doing that mm-hmm. for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. But going back to that strategy, I think would be, you know, you'd be able to clean up in clerkships, right? If you were the, if you were the top 10 school that was like more conservative friendly and had more conservative faculty, I mean, you know, your students would get you know, all the federal clerkships, right? Yep. But, you know, I mean, the problem is I think the students, most students don't want it right now and you'd get a bunch of pushback. Sure. And your existing faculty might not want it either. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, could be Chicago. You just need to, you need to clone yourself 12 or 13 times, Will. And then, and then you've got your Chicago as the, as the foundation for the, the elite, eliter George Mason. No comment. Uh, good luck with the cloning. All right, moving along. Should we actually do some law stuff? We should do some law. We've had an hour of politics, okay. and I the most I can take before I'll oh. feel dirty and need to take a shower. Do I embrace the you know implicit assumption that law and politics are distinguishable? I don't know. Okay, we got a new grant uh, in a case that does explicitly pose the question of whether Chevron should be overruled, the Chevron Doctrine. Uh, in which courts defer to uh, reasonable uh, interpretations of ambiguous statutes uh, involving administrative agencies. Yeah, maybe. Maybe or, what? I mean, it explicitly poses the question of whether the court should overrule yes. Chevron or. <laughs> yeah, yes. And so this is weird. The, the case, the petition had two questions presented. Part one is, we can talk about the actual issue, but basically part one is, was the thing the court below did correct under the Chevron doctrine? Yes. Right? And part two is, whether the court should overrule Chevron or, so this is actually question 2A and B, whether the court should overrule Chevron, that's 2A, I'm just giving them, putting in the letter to make it clearer, or B, at least clarify that statutory silence concerning controversial powers expressly but not narrowly granted elsewhere, ex- expressly but narrowly granted elsewhere in the statute does not constitute an ambiguity requiring deference to the agency. This so, is some A plus question presented drafting. Yeah. And then the court granted as to question two. So the court is not interested in resolving this case under Chevron. Right. But it is interested in either overruling Chevron or at least clarifying that uh, whether statutory silence concerning controversial powers expressly but narrowly granted elsewhere, controversial powers. Right. And if you'd put the A and B in separate questions, then the court has to decide whether it really wants to officially grant overrule Chevron or not. But by smushing those two anti-Chevron-y into one, you put overruling Chevron on the table without- and preserve the ability to really argue that heavily in the briefs. Right. But without the court needing to commit itself to that at the grant stage. Yeah. Which is why Paul Clement, whose name is in the petition, gets paid the big bucks. Yeah. Although maybe not as, as much big bucks as he used to because he left Kirkland and Ellis. Yeah, Paul Clement, former Solicitor General, he's bounced around a lot. Firm-wise, he was uh, at King of Spalding, uh, where I worked. I, I got there, and he he quit a few months later, and then he went and did his own little firm with uh, Viet Den, and then he went to Kirkland, and then he quit there uh, after a few years and is now doing his own little firm again. His firm is Clement and Murphy. Aaron yes. Murphy was my uh, co-clerk and office mate at the court. 
Yeah. And uh, they seem to have, you know, a little going. bit more than a dozen attorneys there. So it's kind of a small, a small crew. I mean, I love this Chevron thing because I think the court hasn't applied Chevron in a while. Right? Yeah. 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 They, they find ways to kind of get around it and just don't address it. Or I think they ignore it. I mean, I think this yeah. is the kind yeah, of just, just, just like, yeah, don't talk about it. <laughs> the lawyers don't talk about it. The court doesn't talk about it. Yeah. Now, of course, the lower courts still talk about it. Yeah. Which is one reason the court might want to decide whether it wants to let the lower courts in on the joke. But it's kind of interesting. Yeah. So in terms of the actual uh, issues uh, in the case, uh, it is about some some laws I didn't really know anything about. The Magnuson-Stevens Act, which is about fishery management in federal waters mm-hmm. and imposes certain uh, powers and obligations on the National Marine Fisheries Service, which is an entity I did not know anything about. So I'm a little out of my depth uh, here, so to speak, uh, pun intended, because this is a case about fishing. Yeah. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. No, uh, that, was, I mean, that wasn't really a good one. That was a pretty shitty one. But Well, I, I was slow to catch it, so that yeah. it was funnier when I caught it. I do know Magnuson and Stevens. Those are, well, they were senators from states with a lot of fish. Yeah. So that makes sense. That checks out. So I basically, uh, as I understand it, in very broad uh, outlines, they're these laws that require like certain kinds of fishing boats to like have a slot in which the, the federal observer can like hang out on the boat and make sure you're not violating any of the rules. Uh-huh. Is this like how Yates, the fish smuggler, the fish uh, guy got caught? No, he didn't get caught that way. They came in like they, they were in a different boat and they came in, okay. boarded, boarded the ship. Um, okay. I don't know if there was a plan involved. Because um, that guy left, the inspector guy left, and that's when he was like, throw all the fish overboard, forget about the fish. Yeah, okay. But now the National Marine Fisheries Service is sort of saying that these boat owners have to pay the salaries of the monitors. Uh-huh. Um, and the statute elsewhere sort of says, yeah, you do have to do that under certain circumstances and with certain caps. But then as alleged here, the fishery service is like, well, in addition to all that stuff, you actually have to do a lot more and pay them under these circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, the the argument below was, well, this is ambiguous. It doesn't say you can't do it. So it's reasonable for the agency to say you do have to do it. And, you know, it's a good case for the Chevron challengers because it just, it does seem like what the government is doing is like, it's kind of picking on the little guy. It's kind of overreaching regulators making business really hard seems like it's there's a pretty good argument that um you know the statute doesn't seem to contemplate this Uh, a lot of stuff that's useful if if you wanted a a vessel to overrule chevron but what do you think do you think this is this is the case it's maybe not a great case for chevron is like it it may be a case where the court can just say like yeah that we've read the statute it's not really ambiguous it doesn't give this power and so there's not room for reasonable reinterpretation here yeah although they, they denied on qp1 yeah so yeah. i mean i think the smart money is always on the intermediate approach so smart money is that they'll they'll do the or yeah they'll clarify that silence is not ambiguity for yeah. chevron purposes and that's an important principle i think yeah they'll have a new like controversial power doctrine sort of like the major questions doctrine controversial powers doctrine well I don't know about even the controversial power doctrine so much as like Chevron concerns, you know, when the act says source. Yeah. And judges are like, what the hell is a source? Can we listen to the agency? 
but it's different when the act doesn't say anything. Yeah. And then the agency comes in and says, well, why not this? Yeah. Um, so everything, like, everything that is not forbidden is permitted. It could be a good case. I doubt it's going to contain the words, you know, Chevron should be and hereby is overruled. Yeah. I mean, and you, I think you were one of the first to call Dobbs as the vehicle for overruling Roe. You're not calling uh, this, not calling your shot on this one yet. So maybe not. We'll, you know, that'll be a case for us to talk about next year, next term. What else? We did get a ruling in the Mifepristone shadow docket matter, mm-hmm. uh, which is that the court uh, has uh, agreed to stay the lower court order, which, you know. Stay uh, the district court order. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Stay, the, yeah, just to be clear. Yeah, stay the district court order, which had enjoined the FDA from doing various things related to Mifepristone and saying it was illegal and says uh, that it stayed pending disposition of the appeal and disposition of a petition for a writ of certiorari. Such a writ is timely sought. Mm-hmm. So the status quo before the district court got involved will prevail uh, until the court you know, acts on uh, the likely petition. The petition from the Fifth Circuit, opinion yeah. that doesn't exist yet, yeah. but the argument that'll happen soon. Yeah. So it's still... Yeah, it could be, could be a while. Justice Thomas uh, noted he would deny without opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Justice Alito writes a solo opinion where he makes that same move that you were just talking about, where it's like, well, you guys did that, and that's not fair. Where he says, look, in these other shadow docket cases, we were criticized for not explaining our conclusions and criticized for this, criticized for that. And I didn't agree with those criticisms, but if they're true there, they're also true here. Mm-hmm. Um, and why aren't you explaining what you're doing? Yeah, uh, and you know, there's not a good justification here. You know, the the appeal is fast tracked in the Fifth Circuit. That'll get resolved quickly. They can come back if there's a problem. Then the first thing he makes that that move, which I think is not totally unfair, although not totally fair either. When some people whose shadow docket criticisms were kind of uh, ill formed and would say like, "Oh my God, I can't believe the court is using the shadow docket," and then you know would turn around and say, "Oh wait, I need the court to use the shadow docket <laughs> to stop SB eight. There are other people, like a friend of the show, Steve Vladek, who have more sophisticated criticisms that I don't think Justice Lido is really embracing here. But then he does move on to the merits and says two things, I think, one of which seems right to me, one of which seems wild to me. So <laughs> one that he says is right is, you know, there's a conflicting injunction in the Washington District Court. We shouldn't let that count for too much because, you know, the FDA is not not uh, appealing that one, and we don't want to let them sort of like leverage getting sued in a friendly jurisdiction and deciding not to appeal that injunction as like yeah. then giving them more, you know, more rights. Which seems that seems fair to me. I mean, I don't know if that's what's yeah. happening there, but that seems fair to me. Yeah, no, that is and more generally that's an interesting problem of how the government could use kind of collusive litigation to kind of tie its hands uh, right. and say, "Oh, I can't do this thing I didn't want to do anyways." Right. Uh, because there's this lawsuit. I will say, this is an issue the court granted cert on last year in Arizona versus city and county of San Francisco. Had this like incredibly interesting uh, oral argument about, but in part, it ends up in, implicating questions about nationwide injunctions and jurisdiction and res judicata and notice and comment and intervention, and the court just digged it. And I think those questions are maybe a little harder than yeah. uh, a three-paragraph treatment on the shadow docket. Uh, can do justice to, and this is maybe actually the shadow docket problem. <laughs> yeah. where you then Justice Lito also says that the reason the government doesn't have irreparable harm is because uh, they could just exercise divorce discretion to like not enforce the law anyway. Did you see this part? Yeah, yeah, 
I thought there were, there's an even crazier part at the end of that paragraph. I thought that's where you were going, but we'll oh. get there in a second. Well, this is, I, yeah, well, yeah. but so as I understand, it's like, yes, the Fifth Circuit might have just made, uh, I mean, so the government says in its application for a stay that even the Fifth Circuit's approach, which doesn't like categorically ban Everstone because it changes the rules, it renders all of it misbranded and would require like sort of massive regulatory and, and practical efforts to sort of just like rejigger. And Justice Lita seems to be saying, well, you know, you could just not enforce it. <laughs> Why are you guys asking us to stay the Fifth Circuit rather than just ignoring it like a like yeah. Abraham Lincoln? I guess yeah, that, that's strange. But then the the final part of this paragraph, he says, and here the government has not dispelled legitimate doubts that it would even obey an unfavorable order in these cases, much less that it would choose to take enforcement actions to which it has strong objections. Yeah, where is he getting the doubt? Like the, he's saying, the, the government is going to refuse to follow court orders. I can't tell if those are the same point. Yeah. Like that's a weird thing to just throw in there unless I'm like misreading what he's saying. Yeah. I, it's weird. I mean, you're just like, I, I doubt that the you know United States government, you know, the executive branch will follow our injunctions. This happens on occasions. I remember in the Nixon tapes case beforehand, like where president Nixon is ordered to like cooperate with the subpoenas that result in him eventually resigning from office. One of the first questions they ask the oral argument to his lawyer is, I think it's maybe it's Thurgood Marshall who asks, is basically, are you gonna are you gonna agree with our order? I think the, he just keeps saying, Are you submitting this case for jurisdiction to the court? Do you agree that you're giving this case to jurisdiction to the court? <laughs> and of course they say yes. But I think that's taken to be like, you know, a fair thing you want to make sure of before yeah. you decide to rule on the case. I don't know what Justice Alito's yeah. Uh, I mean, I, again, I think it is true that the government has used enforcement discretion somewhat aggressively in this area. So I understand that argument. But anyway, this just seems wild to me. Yeah. Also, there are some previous shadow docket cases that say that anytime a government, the, anytime the government's policies are enjoined, that's like per se or, or irreparable injury because like there's a sort of democratic, you know, legitimacy to what the government's doing, not cited or acknowledged by Justice Alito or distinguished. So, what do we make of the fact that nobody else joins? Well, we don't know. You know, we don't have the full vote, but I think this is a pretty easy case for the government to get a stay. Yeah. Either because the plaintiffs obviously don't have standing unless you're willing to overrule or distinguish Summers versus Earth Island Institute, or because the sheer disruption and the fact that, you know, this is ultimately challenging something that happened 22 years ago mean there's just no reason no reason to grant interim relief rather than let this proceed on the merits. Yeah. I am curious what Justice Thomas would have said. Yeah. Yeah. Why, why does he not want to join? Yeah. Just wants to say he wouldn't, he wouldn't do it. Um, very, very curious about that. Okay. We talked a little bit about revisiting uh, Reeds versus Gertz. I haven't really made any headway on making sense of that one. So okay. maybe, maybe you have, but I, I think I'm kind of still in the same spot on that one. I'm probably more confused than I was. I'll say two things. I'm still in the same spot I was before. I reread the underlying uh, opinion, District Attorney's Office versus Osborne by Chief Justice Roberts. And I do think it bears a reread to help make sense of this because that kind of sets up the whole whole structure. I do think the most plausible argument you could make against the court, I think, is that it's weird for the prosecutor to have been the defendant in this federal suit because it's not clear that the prosecutor is the real defendant yeah. here as opposed to the courts. Yeah. Um, and there's a mismatch between suing a prosecutor and then saying you need time to wait for what the courts are going to say. Yeah. But I think often the remedy for not having included a necessary party 
is not necessarily like dismissing the whole case on sovereign immunity grounds. Often it's to give you a chance to amend, to add the necessary yeah. parties, and there are some rules of procedure about that. So it seems to me there might be some more complicated stuff that happens to remand, but I remain unconvinced that yeah. Justice Kavanaugh had to get into them before he could you know, deal with this case. Yeah. I'm standing by it until you uh, until you convince me. I'm not going to be in a position. I, I don't even know what I think, so I have nothing I want to convince you of. So I'm running out of time, but maybe we'll uh, just quickly mention, as I think we had expected, the North Carolina uh, Supreme Court uh, went ahead and uh, ruled in the Harper case. I mean, this is, I want to be careful how I explain this because, you know, there's there's the case that's before the Supreme Court right now, which is like related to the case that the North Carolina Supreme Court was like, hey, we want to take that back right. and reconsider it. Uh, and we had this lengthy discussion a couple episodes a- ago about, you know, does that change the Supreme Court's jurisdiction or not? I think kind of where we landed was maybe we thought it doesn't because it's like a separate, you know, it's it's all part of the same related case, but like it's a separate set of judgments that are involved. Is, oh, that, where, we, is that where we landed on that? We landed there and at the oral argument in this case that seemed to where some of the lawyers and the justices had landed. The North Carolina Supreme Court appears not to have landed there. I think in their opinion, in the arguments, it sounded like the plan was overrule the precedent about partisan gerrymandering, yeah, yeah. but believe the judgment in place. Yeah. The North Carolina court has now purported, I believe, to to actually vacate the judgment that's under review at the court, which I remain unconvinced that the North Carolina court has jurisdiction to do that. Yeah, I mean, because it, it's like, the question shouldn't just be, does what the North Carolina Supreme Court did here take away the Supreme Court's jurisdiction? It could be like, no, the Supreme Court, you know, might be able to protect its own jurisdiction and th- this yeah. Because if the case, if it's really the same judgment and it's up with the Supreme Court, like the lower court is not supposed to be able to mess around with it. Yeah. Now, maybe, again, maybe this was talking about before, maybe the fact that the North Carolina Supreme Court could mess around with it is a sign that it was never really final and never really before the Supreme Court in the first place. Like there are kind of two sides of the same coin, but something funny is happening here. Yeah. I don't think we have to say anything more with this now. So th- today, uh, the parties filed a letter with the court in Moore versus Harper. That just says uh, jointly the respondents and uh, petitioners. That just says, you know, we represent the respondents and petitioners in Moore versus Harper. We write to notify the court that on Friday, April twenty eighth, the North Carolina Supreme Court issued its opinion in this case. We would be pleased to file supplemental briefs regarding the effect of the decision on this court's jurisdiction, should the court request them. So, the parties are like, you know, <laughs> let us know if you want to talk about this, um, and. Boy, I don't know what the court's going to do. There is another pending case that people have referenced, I think, from Ohio. I forget the name, that also poses this issue. So one uh, option I've seen is to just dig the North Carolina case yeah. and grant the other case. You could also not even dig the North Carolina case. You could just grant the other case. Yeah, just then, keep it sitting around. And then GVR for yeah reconsideration whatever. and yeah wouldn't make a difference. So I guess uh, granting the Ohio case for... OT twenty three is, or maybe even for the for an emergency session, is looking pretty good right now. We will see what happens, uh, yeah. for better or for worse. Okay, uh, okay. so that goes through uh, the list of stuff uh, I wanted to talk about. Anything else you had, Will? No, that's a lot. Thanks everyone for listening. As I mentioned uh, earlier uh, on the episode, please do uh, rate and review, and uh, send your friends uh, the podcast. Expand our listenership. 
there are you know some number of people who I think would benefit from the show who have not discovered it even now. So uh, please help. You can send us an email, pod at dividedargument.com. You can leave us a voicemail, uh, including one in song form, 314-649-3790. You can go to our website, dividedargument.com, for transcripts. Uh, they're posted fairly soon after the episodes come down for those who want to be able to read rather than listen. You can go to store.dividedargument.com for t-shirts and various other uh, pieces of merchandise. Uh, thanks to the Constitutional Law Institute for sponsoring all of our endeavors. I'll second the request for excellent songs, uh, especially about Justice Scalia opinions. And if we don't record another episode for some time, it'll be because we've been forced to appear before the Senate Judiciary Committee. Mm-hmm.